The following show first aired on KZYX, listener-powered community radio from Mendocino County and beyond in September of 2023. Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. I am your host, Chad Swimmer. Today on the show, we are going to get an extended interview with Jessica K. Cruz, the Senior Pollinator Conservation Specialist at Xerxes Society. We will talk about Xerxes' education and conservation efforts and the state of pollinators in these trying times. Before that, though, we are going to talk about the events that have been occurring in relation to Jackson Demonstration State Forest. Last Friday, September 15th, CAL FIRE had its meeting of the JAG, the Jackson Advisory Group, which has emerged as the most important avenue for public input into the management of JDSF, Jackson Demonstration State Forest. The meeting, which was held at the Presbyterian Church in Fort Bragg, ended up being standing room only. Representatives of at least seven of our region's tribes were present. The resounding public call was for no more business as usual. The continuing to propose timber harvest without an up-to-date environmental impact report and a new and approved management plan, and most importantly, authentic co-management with tribes, would not be acceptable. For a little background on what all this means, JDSF at 80 square miles is the largest state forest in California. It is a hot spot of biodiversity and home to a large percentage of the most important true second growth redwood stands remaining, about 2% of the original redwood range of 160 years ago. It is also the unceded stolen land of the northern Pomo and Coast Yuki peoples. Since 1949, CDF, aka Cal Fire, has operated the forest as, and I quote Board of Forestry Policy, commercial timberlands. Since the 1990s, the public has protested this, and with the lead of Vince Taylor, litigated and stopped harvest from 2001 to 2009. Three years ago, a new movement to change the management formed through the work of the Mendocino Trail Stewards, and this movement has merged with the burgeoning wave of land-back movements to nearly stop operations again, but this time through direct action, letter-writing campaigns, outreach, demonstration, and communication with state representatives. The California Natural Resources Agency, which oversees CAL FIRE, finally agreed to an early revision of the 2016 management plan, which had been operating on a now nearly 20-year-old 900-page environmental impact report. Unfortunately, the agency has continued to work tirelessly to control the terms of the rewrite in order to reduce changes to the present status quo. As listeners are probably aware of, the state appointed a trained facilitator to reduce the conflict to the JAG meetings, where discussion of the new management plan and the presently proposed timber harvest plans would take place. Dr. Kim Rodriguez, a forest geneticist and previous member of the Board of Forestry, was sought out and agreed to take on the daunting task of facilitation. I refer people to my website, disquietmedia.blue, where you can listen to the June 29th, 2023 episode and hear more about this. Dr. Rodriguez facilitated two meetings, but then resigned. Here, I would like to read from her resignation letter. I accepted the role as facilitator for the JAG in November 2022 in order to establish a collaborative process to work through the past and ongoing conflicts related to management issues at JDSF. At that time and at my first JAG meeting in March, I stated I would remain facilitator if I was working well for CAL FIRE, the JAG, and the public, and that the process had to be working well for me to remain in this role. I am now unable to support a collaborative process due to the policy constraints imposed by the California Natural Resources Agency and the State Board of Forestry, combined with the timelines requested by CAL FIRE to review and implement new timber harvest plans. JDSF is a very rare and special forest with the potential to inform forestry practices in California and beyond at a critical time in our history. It has even been referred to as a gem of a forest. I have been concerned about the process since the June 6th meeting when we ran out of time to complete any open discussion 
discussion of the proposed scope of work for a new forest management plan and provided no open public comment period. I fear there will not be adequate time for full discussion at the September meeting based on the proposed agenda. CAL FIRE committed to implementing a public meeting on the scope of work prior to August 1st in order to provide time for this input, but it was never done. This topic will be on the September agenda for full discussion, and based on our agreed process, it should be on the November agenda for potential finalization by the JAG. CAL FIRE is not committed to bringing this topic back to the JAG in November. I cannot support a successful collaborative process under these constraints. I was informed that the main purpose of the JAG and JDSF is to keep THPs moving forward and achieve the non-THP goals. The JAG will need to make decisions on the Camp 1 Timber Harvest Plan in September. As the first THP coming to the JAG since I joined this process, it is critical to establish a clear process for decision-making in order to support or deny this request. CAL FIRE also expects to introduce a new THP in September for the JAG to consider for approval in November. The JAG works on consensus, the highest form of collaboration, yet the process is not truly collaborative. CAL FIRE announces the projects and the timelines, seeks limited input with limited dialogue, and then makes decisions. I am willing to support a collaborative process if and when the state and CAL FIRE commit to such a process. And I sincerely hope the development of the new forest management plan is done in a collaborative manner. With gratitude and continued hope, Kimberly Rodriguez, Ph.D. Dr. Rodriguez's letter confirmed what, what many of us environmentalists have been saying all along, that CAL FIRE makes the plans, set the terms of the discussion, controls the timeline, and is not in any way obligated to take heed of public input that they are in many ways negotiating in bad faith and using the public process to route our energy away from other, possibly more productive uses. Surprisingly, Dr. Rodriguez, in spite of having resigned, made the four-hour journey from her home to attend the meeting as a member of the public. After the meeting, she stated that she was struggling for words to summarize her reflections on the September 15th JAG meeting. She called it chaotic and that they didn't follow through with any of the meeting agreements she had established with the JAG, such as active listening, one person only speaking at a time and using inquiry to learn more. And she was very disappointed that the JAG didn't discuss her resignation letter at all or the serious consequences she raised. It confirmed, events at the meeting confirmed that Cal Fire failed to seek tribal input before bringing the scope of work to the JAG. So, step number one for this process to have legitimacy would be to seek tribal input before moving the scope of work forward. Another surprising development in the run-up to the meeting last Friday was a public comment submitted jointly by climate scientist J.P. O'Brien and internationally renowned Redwood researcher Steve Sillett. While J.P. O'Brien has been outspoken in his criticism of CAL FIRE, it is very notable that Professor Sillett signed publicly onto this letter as Sillett holds a research chair at Humboldt State University School of Forestry and previously has been reluctant to criticize CAL FIRE publicly. I would like to read a few things from their extensively footnoted letter. The letter starts with setting the stage with an extensive documentation of the extremity of climate change and how things are progressing much faster than science had predicted. I quote, Our planet is changing in rapid and drastic ways, many of which may be irreversible on timescales relevant to a human lifespan. Here on the northern California coast, just 200 years ago, the most carbon-dense forests in the world stood towering. Today's Redwood region only holds a small fraction of the carbon biomass it once did. The 2018 State of the Redwoods Conservation Report found that over 90% of the Redwood region is dominated by young, intermediate-age secondary forests regenerating after logging. 
Somewhat surprisingly, mature secondary redwood forests are far more rare than primary old-growth forests due to logging pressure, as these over-100-year-old forests now contain the most valuable, economically and ecologically, trees not protected in parks and reserves. The paper goes on to document how... Of all the environmental factors driving population decline of fish species, logging had the single largest impact. It also shows how the tallest trees are the ones that are the most vulnerable to climate change. The second half of their comments are specific regarding JDSF modernization. One, they urge the JAG to think creatively and, quote, out of the box moving forward. Solutions that model practices of the past and or perpetuate the status quo are destined to fall short in meeting the needs that both forests and humans will acquire in the decades to come. Two, that the scope of work, two, scope of work, Broadly, the scope of work seems mostly reasonable, with the exception of two things. A, that the choice of the consulting firm chosen to carry out the services included in the request for a proposal should have broad public and JAG input. A list of qualified firms should be brought to the JAG at a public meeting where the merits and shortcomings of each firm can be discussed and debated. This will provide the necessary transparency with respect to how and why the choice on the particular consulting firm was made, and thus help to build trust moving forward. It will also ensure that the best qualified firm is chosen. Two, that the scope of work does not call for or include anywhere a request for the environmental review of the new management plan. The overarching changes needed for meeting JDSF modernization, as well as complying with the five new, since 2016, statewide policy documents, will require fundamentally new management approaches and strategies. Accordingly, these should undergo an environmental review to ensure that any negative impacts associated with management can be avoided or effectively mitigated. In a time where environmental systems the world over are imperiled and being pushed to the brink, now is not the time to forego environmental oversight and due diligence. With the climate rapidly changing and hotter, more extreme weather, both droughts and floods, robustly predicted, as well as the vast preponderance of contemporary science pointing to the detrimental impacts of such on our forests, the stakes are just too high to not conduct an environmental review for the proposed long-term management of JDSF. There is much more to this important document, and it is actually now on the CAL FIRE website. The easiest way to access this document and others related to Jackson Demonstration State Forest and the September 15th JAG meeting is to Google JDSF CAL FIRE. Click on Jackson Demonstration State Forest CAL FIRE which will take you to the JDSF website, which has a ridiculously long URL. Scroll down to JDSF Advisory Group. Click on that. Scroll down to September 2023 JAG Documents. Click on that, and then within that, click on Public Comments. There are many different important comments to read, but one is the O'Brien Sillett comment as well as the O'Brien comment, which he submitted afterwards, and the EPIC comment which is quite powerful. To attempt a brief paraphrase of O'Brien and Sillett's letter, the science does not support continued operations in JDSF without a new environmental impact report that adequately addresses climate issues. In an extremely telling moment of the meeting, JAG Chair George Hollister called this letter, quote, philosophy, in spite of the depth of the scientific citations included. Hollister has called research that doesn't support timber harvest, quote, agenda-driven science.
I must also stress that Hollister himself, the chair of the JAG, holds timber production land near Compshi and submits his own timber harvest plans to Cal Fire for approval in another instance of the many conflicts of interest that plague this government agency. By the end of the afternoon, though, enough JAG members had left that there was no quorum for approving any timber harvest plans or scope of work, so the public appears to have taken the day. How Cal Fire reacts to this and what actions they take in the coming months will be crucial. Will they listen to the active and engaged public and genuinely attempt to seek our input, or will they continue trying to sideline us to maintain the status quo? We shall see. In the meantime, I encourage you to email Senator McGuire, State Senator McGuire, and his email address is easy, S-E-N-A-T-R, period, M-C-G-U-I-R-E, at senate.ca.gov, and ask him to stand up publicly and state that it is crucial that environmental review be conducted for the new Jackson Demonstration State Forest Management Plan. But that is almost it for my summary of the September 15th JAG meeting. But before we go to our feature interview of the show with Jessica Cruz of Xerxes Society, I would like to get a little takeaway from Lynn Pascal of the Trail Stewards Board. Hi, Chad. So I had a couple of takeaways from the meeting. One was the JAG and CAL FIRE really need to work on their organization and give more time for the public. The public is showing up to the meetings now, so they really need to work that all out. Maybe do half-day meetings so people aren't so exhausted and maybe just leave the meetings to one topic, maybe one THP, even though I don't think they should be doing THPs yet because... They haven't revised the management plan yet, but that's a whole other story. Something else that I found slightly hopeful, um, I brought up to them the Board of Forestry and their meetings. And, you know, the Board of Forestry seems like this overlord that's just kind of um, making all the decisions. We can give them all the advice we want. We can give the JAG all the advice we want. The JAG can give the Board of Forestry all the advice they want. But in the end, the Board of Forestry makes the final decision. And, you know, since the Board of Forestry has so much power and affects this entire community so much, why don't they come here and have their meetings here, or at least some of their meetings here? And uh, it was actually mentioned by someone, I think Kyle Farmer, that that was not out of the question. So that was interesting. And I also asked Lynn to talk about a cleanup day that the trail stewards are doing in conjunction with Coastal Cleanup Day. How do you build community? Pick up trash with your neighbors. The Mendocino Trail Stewards are joining the California Coastal Cleanup Day this Saturday, September 23rd. We'll be picking up trash in the Jackson Forest from 10 a.m. to noon. We'll meet at the Simpson Lane pullout about a mile and a half east of the roundabout just south of Fort Bragg. Bring gloves and water. If you're looking for a cleanup closer to your neighborhood, go to MendocinoLandTrust.org and click on News and Events. See you Saturday. Thank you, Lynn. I was Lynn Pascal of the Mendocino Trail Stewards. You are listening to the September 19th edition of the Ecology Hour. I'm your host, Chad Swimmer, and this show is based at KZYXNZ, listener-powered community radio for Mendocino County and beyond. We at Pride Nation 101 and Disquiet Voices would like to thank the Cloud Forest Institute for being our fiscal sponsor. With their organizational support, we are able to provide for you shows of this quality with content both local and international. Check them out at www.cloudforest.org. And if you'd like to donate to us or to them, go to the donate page for info. Thank you.
I am speaking with Jessica Cruz, who is the Senior Pollinator Conservation Specialist for the Xerxes Society based in Sacramento, California. Jessa, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Chad. Oh, you're welcome. I'm looking forward to this conversation. You have gone down a path that led you surprisingly to Xerxes. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's been a really long journey. Um, from the time that I was a kid, I, I, I guess I feel like the natural world was the place that I felt the most at home. Um, it's where I felt at peace. It's where I felt safe. Um, and also, I think also where I was just endlessly fascinated by sort of the magic of the natural world, like watching spiders make spider webs or watching a beaver build a dam. Like those things were so endlessly fascinating to me as a kid. And I think as I got older, I started to become aware that the natural world like really isn't something that we can take for granted. Um, and like just starting to see the impacts of human activity on the natural world was um, was really glaring even way back in the day when I was a kid. And I feel like the natural balance of our ecosystems and the balance that sort of maintains healthy ecosystems is really under serious threat right now. And, you know, as humans, we we can't survive without these functional ecosystems. You know, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we grow, like all of those things really require the natural world to, to sort of function in a certain way. I particularly started getting interested in that last piece, the food we grow. And when I was in college, I started getting really interested in sort of sustainable agriculture. And that led me to get really interested in pollinators and natural enemies. And um, sort of all of that took me eventually uh, to Xerxes. So, yeah, here I am. Thank you. So what is the Xerxes Society? Yeah, great question. So the Xerxes Society is an international nonprofit organization that works to protect biodiversity through the conservation of invertebrates and their habitats. We were founded by Robert Michael Pyle in 1970 and named after the Xerxes blue butterfly, which is actually one of the first invertebrates to go extinct. Um, due to human activities. So the Xerxes Blue, their habitat was in coastal sand dunes near San Francisco and development led to the sort of obliteration of those habitats and um, the eventual extinction of the Xerxes Blue butterfly. That was back in 1940. So it took a number of years to actually found Xerxes, but we were founded around that, that story and that butterfly. And when I started working with Xerxes 15 years ago, our staff, we had fewer than 10 full-time people on staff, so we were really small. Um, and now we have over 70 people working in 25 states in the U.S. and Canada. So we've grown a lot. We like to say that we are protecting the little critters that run the world. Um, that's one of our mottos. And the other more official motto is um, protecting the life that sustains us. That's really our vision uh, at Xerxes. Thank you. What do you do for Xerxes? <laughs> so many things. <laughs> My kids joke that all I do for a living is is talk uh, in meetings. Um, and I guess there's some truth to that. Um, but it is obviously a lot more involved in that. Um, as the senior pollinator specialist and in California, I coordinate a lot of our work sort of statewide. We have, I've lost track, but um, I think maybe close to a dozen people now just working in the state of California. So it's a lot of, and we're spread out throughout the state. So it's a lot of coordination of managing people and managing projects. Um, but especially when I started at Circe's, 
my focus was really on habitat restoration. It was that on the ground, that was kind of a field technician, on the ground habitat restoration, planting hedgerows and wildflower meadows, restoring natural areas, fire recovery, just a whole broad scope of different types of habitat projects. Um, I did start out working mostly in working lands because I had that interest in sustainable agriculture. So my early work was croplands and a little bit of rangelands, but I've really expanded now to all different landscapes. Um, I think hand in hand with restoration itself, just sort of working on developing sort of restoration technology. So how do you turn a an area that's dominated by you know exotic weeds uh into a native habitat like that's that's process um so that's been a lot of the work that i do and then also a lot of plant materials development work that goes hand in hand with that just there's really a shortage of native plant materials out there on the market to use for these projects so i do a lot of work like working with native plant nurseries and the native seed industry to help that sort of development so that the right plants are available for these projects. A lot of outreach and education. And that's also part of what I do. You know, when I started with Circe's People really didn't know the difference between a honeybee and a native bee or why it mattered, why they should care. So that, that outreach and education piece has been critical, I think, just sort of raising the awareness. But, you know, on a given day, I might be out at a farm, uh, you know, planting a hedgerow. I might be out collecting milkweed seed for monarch projects. Uh, I might be putting together a conference presentation or doing something really exciting like writing a grant report. <laughs> kind of all of that. But the grants are such crucial pieces of this whole thing. They are. And we have an amazing development team that does the lion's share of like writing those grants. And they make my job of just, you know, reviewing and reporting really easy. I can't take much credit for that. But our team is phenomenal. And yes, like you absolutely have to be able to figure out how to get those grants to, to do this work. So... Mm -hmm. As Xerxes services to farmers, you're free, right? Um, generally speaking, yes, we work in partnership with the Natural Resources Conservation Service. So a lot of our funding to work with partners comes from that organization, the NRCS, and they're umbrellaed under the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, and their mission is, is really resource conservation. So, you know, wildlife conservation is, is a part of that. So that's where a lot of that sort of working lands funding comes from, which means that, yes, producers don't have to pay out of pocket if they want help planning and to some extent planting a hedgerow. There's a lot of costs that still aren't covered. Um, and that's probably a whole other conversation. But the goal is to make it as easy and you know attainable as possible for producers because they have a lot on their plate in running a farm is hard work and it, it's expensive and so to, to do that take those extra steps to really think about sustainability and conservation um <clears throat> realistically there, there's got to be a lot of support um to make that happen mm -hmm. well i'm thinking about philosophically that kind of you're on a fulcrum between a natural world and a um, tended garden or a tended farm. And you're talking about hedgerows. What is the function of a hedgerow? Yeah, so hedgerows are, I think, maybe the most accessible type of habitat work. There's a history of hedgerows in working lands that goes back to, to Europe and goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. The idea is that a hedgerow is, at least as we define it now and as we sort of practice it in California, 
it's often a linear planting that might border, it might just border a cropped area along the edge, along the fence line or along a, a road, an access road or something like that. It's an area where can, that can be a little bit protected from some of the impacts of especially like in industrial agriculture. It is comprised of native plants. We really focus on the importance of native plants. And yeah, it's usually a combination of, of shrubs, some native grasses, lots of flowering plants because we're talking about pollinators and and it's a very artificial habitat in that you wouldn't find like a, you know, a linear hedgerow in nature, but it's what works in working lands. And as far as the wildlife is concerned, they don't care <laughs> as long as they have the resources. If the resources are there for providing pollen and nectar and, and nesting area, um, that's what matters. And that the beauty of, of working to support pollinators is that even really small parcels of land that's you know been restored in some way so even a, a small hedgerow can have a really big impact and we've worked to do a lot of monitoring we've partnered with uc davis um the dr neil williams lab um earlier on we we partnered with some folks at uc berkeley who really collected a lot of data looking at these hedgerows in, in um, agricultural areas and seeing really significant changes in in the communities of pollinators and, and beneficial insects that that you know they move in they use the hedgerow um in almost all circumstances so mm -hmm. and you, you used a word a while back which is so ubiquitous wildlife but that wildlife for so many people means a very limited number of animals you know the mammals that they might see in the hedgerow which might be one or two or five species while you know, you're looking at hundreds of different invertebrates and like a hedgerow, say you work mostly in Sacramento Valley or all over. I work statewide. I'm, I am based in Sacramento and, you know, I think a lot of my work has been in the Central Valley, but we do a lot of work in the coastal foothill region as well, probably almost as much. So if you were to take, say, a cultivated a monoculture and you were to look at insect diversity in that field, how much would it increase if you had a, a substantial hedgerow? I don't have a number off the top of my head that could be supported by scientific data, but I could probably get it to you. But I will say with the monitoring that I've done, when we do baseline monitoring, so we will go out and look at the pollinator or insect communities prior to creating any habitat, and we might find one or two species. I mean, it's very limited. And then, you know, after we plant the hedgerow and we do say several years of follow-up monitoring, which we're not always able to do, but that's an ideal scenario. We do two or three years of, of monitoring, sort of following up, you know, we could easily see 15 or 20 species in that same area. So really significant impacts. And it's gonna vary a lot. There's so many variables that, you know, that can affect those pollinator communities, but there's no question that it's that it's a significant impact from doing something like planting a hedgerow. Mm -hmm. We, you and I had an interaction by email a few weeks ago about this ubiquitous white line sphinx moth, the hummingbird moth that's all over, that was all over and they're gone from our yard. They were here for two weeks and you mentioned, well, aren't they related to the tomato hornworm. And I think there's another hummingbird moth that is, but people think of more insects and they get scared. And that is such a great point. And I'm really glad you bring this up because I think a lot of people 
when they hear, and this was especially true early on in my career, when I made the mistake of telling people when they're like, oh, what do you do? And I would, um, so sometimes I just say like, oh, I'm, I'm an entomologist. And then they would start talking about killing bugs, you know, like, oh, how do you kill termites? And then when I would say, well, I don't kill insects, I actually work to protect them. <laughs> People <laughs> look at me and say like, why? <laughs> why are you doing that? I don't, what, what? so there is, I think a, there's an explanation and story behind it, but um, we, I use the term beneficial insect a lot. And I feel like that even that term is loaded beneficial to whom, I mean, on some level, all, all insects play a really important role in our ecosystems. Even the ones we don't like, like tomato hornworms, if we're trying to grow tomatoes. Um, but I also do acknowledge, particularly in agricultural systems, there are insects that you want to see and those are, those are, you know, and those that you really don't want to see. Um, and so some, a lot of the work that I've done is just in educating people, kind of like you educated me with the sphinx moth, because I had thought that all sphinx moths were in their immature form tomato hornworms, but some of them are just hornworms that may or may not eat tomatoes. So that's, you know, it's that kind of education where I explain to people, like, just because you see an insect doesn't mean that it's bad. I think with pollinators, people are like, okay, yeah, cool. Butterflies are pretty. I get that. And like, now we all know we need bees to pollinate our crops. So we've made some strides there. We still have some work to do with sort of other beneficial insects. So, you know, I'm thinking about what I call natural enemies. So these are insects that prey on pest insects. Um, and that's a concept that still taking a lot of work to get across to people that like some beetles are good. Some bugs are good. You want to have these around. I mean, even some mites are good. There's a predatory mite that feeds on pest mites and mites are big agricultural pest. So I think to me, it all kind of ties back to, again, creating healthy ecosystems. Um, because when you have that, you have a good balance of, of predator to prey. And that's what prevents really severe pest outbreaks, say, in an agricultural system. I just wanted to take a second to remind you that you are listening to the Ecology Hour, based at KZYX and Z, listener-powered community radio from Mendocino County and beyond. I am your host, Chad Swimmer, and we are talking to Jessica Cruz, the Senior Pollinator Conservation Specialist from Xerxes Society. I start thinking about agricultural systems as ecosystems in and of themselves, and how can we create a agro ecosystem that is functional with like minimal inputs, you know, minimal amounts of pesticide use or fertilizers or other things. How can we look at all the natural systems we have in place to create a really healthy agricultural ecosystem? Mm -hmm. As it seems like whatever humans do to try to, to tailor things to their own needs oftentimes have these unexpected chains of reactions and and consequences and i'm thinking of the using the usage of the neonicotinoids the pesticides that were i think mothballs or no no sorry um that are the drops that we're putting on our dogs and cats and our houses to keep the food yeah right amongst the, the, other the, things neonics were in their early days, sort of this like miracle pesticide, um, they were thought to be safer than the, some of the organophosphates or, um, you know, pyrethroids or other things that they um, replaced. And in some in some ways, they're, they are safer to humans. And that's where the conversation is really tricky. Um, 
but they're not safer for wildlife and they're definitely not safer for, for insects, you know, per se. And, um, and yes, neonics were, are used in the flea medications that you put on your pet, um, your pets to, to keep fleas and ticks off. Um, there's neonicotinoids in your, you know, um, over the counter, you know, bug be gone or, you know, whatever you might want to grab to spray your roses if you see aphids on them. And there's obviously neonics and a lot of commercial um, products as well. And, you know, the, the particular problem with neonicotinoids is just that they're, they're systemic and they're absorbed into the vascular system of a plant, which is great from the perspective of someone who's applying that product because you don't have to apply it as often. But it's really bad in terms of trying to mitigate risk because you have a product that has such longevity that it can build up in the system of a plant and really concentrate in the pollen or nectar over the course of like years of use. Um, it's also water soluble neonics are so they move in our soil, they move in our waterways, you know, they don't the pesticides don't stay where they're where you put them and so that all and and they are um toxic to pollinators as well so it's just caused all kinds of problems and again i think it's just i'm getting very philosophical here but i i feel like it's human nature to be really short-sighted to look at you know short-term gain and not longer term potentially negative impacts and i feel like that is definitely the story with neonicotinoids mm -hmm. What are other of the most important threats to pollinators and invertebrates that you see? Yeah, I mean, pesticides, since we've been talking about them for sure are, and not just neonicotinoids, but just broadly, um, pesticides are really an issue. And, and I do want to say they're not just used in agricultural areas, as, as I've alluded to. There's a lot of pesticide use going on in non-ag areas um, that is uh, equally destructive. So it's something that... We really need to uh, work on and, and think about. We so we we did a really interesting study about pesticides a couple of years ago. We were just focused on milkweed, and we took leaf samples from milkweed plants in all these different landscapes in California. We we took them from roadsides, natural areas. Um, uh, farm hedgerows, uh, my backyard, um, you know, is a, a residential sample. Um, my backyard, where at that point I had lived for six years and never applied any pesticides, um, and every single leaf sample we took came back contaminated with some type of pesticides, and most had more than one, and some were at lethal levels. So, um, you know, the fact that even the sample from my yard came back was a little shocking to me that there were pesticides in those because I've never applied anything in my yard, but that just goes to show pesticides don't stay where you put them. There are things that stay in the soil for a really, really long time. I found out finally after some research that the pesticide that was found, for example, in the milkweed in my yard was from um, a, a, a termite treatment that they've done around the base of my house, which is standard practice when they're selling new houses. Like, I didn't know this. So anyway, all that is to say, um, the pesticides are, are kind of everywhere and we can't, we really need to do something different. Um, just the, the level of toxicity is, is not sustainable and, and, and they're getting less effective. You know, the more you use them, the more insects build up resistance. Um, but you asked me about other threats. So I'll move on from talking about pesticides and talk about, I think the other really big threat 
is just habitat loss. And whether that's just sort of degradation of existing habitats, whether it's urbanization or agricultural intensification, like there's all these different things going on, but the end result is like, we're losing habitat and all wildlife needs habitat. You know, they need food, they need shelter. Um, there's this really interesting statistic from uh, Disappearing West. I think they're a nonprofit organization and um, they, their study showed that between 2001 and 2011, so in that 10 year period, natural areas in California were disappearing at the rate of one football field every five minutes. Um, mm which is just mind blowing to me. So, you know, we our 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 ecosystems and the wildlife that rely on them can't um, persist without habitat. Um, and so that's why so much of our work at Xerces does focus on that aspect of it. Um, because at the end of the day, like you, you have to give these critters a place to exist and they need food and they need shelter. Um, and then I think the last really major stressor for pollinators um, and it sort of feels like the elephant in the room at this point is climate change um, and the way that climate change impacts pollinators is sort of the way it's impacting everybody people and wildlife in general but um, you know there's changes in the ranges that some of these pollinators can be found in that are happening as a result of climate change and this is particularly challenging for pollinators that have really specific niche habitats that are just disappearing entirely. So things that have a small range to begin with um, are particularly threatened, but even our more common pollinators are affected. Um, there's sort of an asynchronicity now that happens between pollinators and the plants that they rely on, whether it's a host plant or a plant that they're just visiting for, for nectar resources that when the life cycle of the insect doesn't match up anymore with the life cycle of the plants they depend on, you have a really big problem and that's that's climate change. Um, the impacts of massive storms or just massive weather, weather events in general that are coming from climate change, the huge storms we're having, the horrific wildfires we face in California, um, all of those acres that have burned, you know, are impacting people. But just think about all the wildlife that existed in those areas too, that are being heavily impacted. Or, you know, imagine you were a monarch overwintering on the coast of California this past year with our 31 atmospheric rivers or whatever we had where, you know, those, those were, yes, we have storms, but there were so many and they were so much worse than what we typically experienced that, you know, for a little cluster of monarchs overwintering in a eucalyptus tree on the coast like that had a real impact so climate change it, we just can't ignore it yeah then we will continue to talk about that sadly sadly yeah what are some successes that you have seen i'm glad you asked me that because it's really easy in this field of of environmentalism or conservation to get really discouraged um it's a tough battle um but i will say from advocacy and policy work um which i haven't talked about much yet but is also a very big part of the work that Circe's does um to the on the ground conservation which is sort of more of the work that i personally do I've seen a really positive shift. Um, like I said, I've been in at Xerces for 15 years. So that's sort of the context that I'm using here when I talk about a positive shift. But there's so much more focus and attention both on conservation and on invertebrates, particularly on pollinators, um, than there used to be. 
um, and what this increased focus and attention has meant is more funding, honestly, and more resources, which translates to victories on the ground for biodiversity um, and things like that, that we, we were able to do things we couldn't do before without those resources. So just for example, just last month, um, some of Xerces advocacy work helped prevent the application of toxic insecticides across 25,000 acres of land uh, managed by the BLM in New Mexico. And it's been a really bad year for grasshoppers. Um, well, it's been a good year for the grasshoppers, I guess. It's been a bad year for everybody else who doesn't like the grasshoppers. Um, and there, there's been a lot of um, a talk about spraying to control the grasshoppers, which is understandable that there are ways to do it and there are products to use that are much less toxic than what was planned for this particular project. Um, and we managed to get the plan completely changed through the advocacy work that we did. So that's 25,000 acres protected. Um, this fall, through our work at Xerces and the partners that we work with, we're going to break ground on over 200 new pollinator habitat restoration projects, and that's just in California. So, you know, these feel... They feel big to me because I'm part of them. I know in the larger scheme of things, maybe these are small victories, but you know, obviously Xerces is not the only one doing this work. There's a lot of great organizations out there who are doing this work. And I feel like even though it feels small and incremental, I do see the culture changes changing and I and I and I do see changes on the ground. So I'm I'm calling crazy, but I'm still hopeful. That's wonderful. <laughs> How can listeners act on their own their own properties to support pollinators? I mean, I think there's so much you can do. Xerxes has something called the Pollinator Pledge, which is sort of designed to be like really simple and accessible. Um, so I would encourage people like go to Xerxes, check out our Pollinator Pledge. What it is is that you're pledging to grow pollinator-friendly flowers. We really encourage people to go with native plants, definitely flowering plants, um, and provide nest sites um, in your yard or you know wherever you are. And we talk about what that means. Um, avoiding the use of pesticides, whoever you are, but especially for residential areas, like you're not growing a commercial crop. There's no reason to use pesticides really of any kind um, in a residential setting. Um, and then you know spread the word. You know, tell other people, bring them in, get them to do the same thing. The really fun part about it, I feel like, is planting a pollinator garden. It's really fun. It's really satisfying. It's really beautiful. Um, and just because pollinators themselves are small and can persist in, you know, relatively small fragments of habitat, like we like to say that no action is too small. I mean, you could put a plant in a pot on your patio and that could be helping pollinators. And you also offer resources for people on the website? We have so many resources um, on our website and there's so many other ways for people to get engaged. So the Pollinator Pledge is like, that's a great starting point for people. Um, but there's a couple other things that, there's a lot of other programs that we have that I'm really excited about. I manage one called the Habitat Kit Program. This program is donated and distributed hundreds and thousands of native plants to projects for pollinator projects in California. So people can visit our webpage to find out more about that. It's designed for working lands and for public lands in particular. It's free plant materials. Basically, there's an application process, um, but it's a, it's a great way if you're in that working in any of those landscapes to get involved. 
We also have some amazing community science programs. Um, our California Bumblebee Atlas and our Western Monarch Count are two of our probably most popular, but we have many others. Um, but these programs engage thousands of participants every year. We don't need to have a science background to participate. Um, but we do these programs also bring together a lot of scientists and specialists to lead these programs. So it's just another like kind of great way to just, you know, to just plug in to doing this work, um, those, those community science programs. Mm -hmm. I want to um, skip around a little bit. And one thing that you've talked about and that this is, I'm going to throw an example that kind of reinforces that the the hedgerow concept or the idea of creating habitat for natural pollinators and how helpful it is that many people, many of the listeners to this show are have gardens and orchards that are surrounded by intact natural ecosystems. And we have heavily pollinated trees, trees that are over pollinated and oftentimes not a honeybee in sight. Uh, what do you what can you say about this? It's a mystery. No, I mean, I'll say, so a couple of things I'll say. I mean, I think first and foremost, and this one really surprises people a lot, is that most of the honeybees that we see on the landscape come from managed hives. And so when I think about honeybees, I kind of think about like livestock or domesticated animals, like they kind of fit into that category in my in my mind. There are some wild honeybee populations, but a lot of what we see are, are managed hives and those hives get moved around a lot. And if you're not in an agricultural area, unless your neighbor is like a beekeeper, you might not see a lot of honeybees. On the other hand, there are over 1,600 species of bees that are native just to California alone. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's huge diversity, right? 1,600 different individual species. Um, and a lot of them are amazing pollinators. Many of them are even more um, efficient at pollinating crops than honeybees are. So, but I think what you touched on it, they need some kind of habitat to survive and persist. So if you're in an area that has a lot of natural ecosystems that are close to farms and gardens, you're just naturally going to get those ecosystem services from resident wild pollinators that are living in these natural areas and moving in to pollinate your crops because, it, it, you know, to an insect, a pop, you know, a, a blooming crop is like a blooming tree or a blooming flower. That's resources for them. And they're going to visit those resources to collect the pollen and to drink the nectar. And incidentally, in doing that, will pollinate your, your yard or your garden or your trees or whatever. Um, that's great for people who live in those areas. I live in an urban area in the middle of the Central Valley. Like, we're not lucky enough to have that. But this is that ties back into sort of creating those ecosystems, those natural areas. Like, if you're not lucky enough to be surrounded by an area like that, um, dedicating some space, whether it's your yard or a farm or, or a city park or whatever, uh, to pollinators will actually provide those ecosystem services, you know, broadly. Some of our pollinators will fly, like bumblebees, some of our larger pollinators will fly a couple of miles to forage for food. Mm -hmm. um, smaller insects, maybe not quite as far, but, you know, they move around. So I think if you have these ecosystems, you're going to have good uh, pollinator and insect diversity, and those insects are going to have positive impacts on your you know, your farm, your garden, whatever, and on natural areas too. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Do you have any knowledge about in a situation like this, if somebody brings in a number of, of European honeybees, hives, 
if they um, pose competition and problems to native pollinators? They can. Um, and so they're not necessarily, it's not necessarily incompatible. Like I wouldn't say it's always a problem or it's always bad. It, it is very context dependent. Um, but our European honeybees, they can compete with native bees for floral resources. Um, so it kind of comes down to like how many, what, what are the resources that are available um, and how many hives do you have in an area? I think one of the challenges is that honeybees are one of the only, like most of our native bee species aren't communal they're, or social, they're solitary. So they, they don't, their numbers don't build up as fast as like a, as a honeybee hive where you can have a large number of bees in a single place. So that's where you have to be a little bit careful about, you wouldn't want to bring 50 hives into a beautiful natural area and plop them all down side by side. Like that could be a, a real resource competition concern. Um, the other thing is that the European honeybees can spread diseases to a lot of our native bee communities. Um, and this is because the European honeybees are, are mostly managed, right? So they're managed for agricultural crop production on a really large scale. The hives, each hive is very large. They have multiple hives, you know, all together in close proximity because that's what you have to do if you're a beekeeper and you're moving your bees around to pollinate crops. That's that's how you make an income. So what ends up happening is that there's a lot of diseases and pests that impact the honeybees that beekeepers are having to deal with. It's very hard to keep bees healthy. Um, and it's a, it's a stressful life if you're a honeybee <laughs> to be moved around, be exposed to pesticides. So all of that makes the honeybees themselves susceptible to a lot of pests and diseases. And then when you bring them to areas where there's native bees, some of those pests and diseases can spread from the honeybees to the wild native Bee populations, these native bees have built up almost no natural resistance to a lot of these diseases, for example, because they've never had to face them before. You know, they don't have that natural immunity. So, you know, so that's an issue. So again, I think it's context dependent. I'm certainly not anti-honeybee. I think it's just putting some thought into where is a good place to put a honeybee hive and, and maybe where it doesn't necessarily make sense. And I will say that that beekeeping, as it's cool and it's fun, and I don't discourage people from doing it, but it's not conservation because it doesn't address native pollinators and it doesn't really address the reason that pollinators are declining in the first place. Mm -hmm. Around here, it seems like what I see most are uh, bumblebees. Are their numbers included in that 1600 species of native bees? Yes, their numbers are. And I'm terrified you're going to ask me how many species of bumblebee are native to California because I can't remember. Um, <laughs> but there's quite a few. Um, and there's quite a few that are uh, in decline right now. And there's a few that, as people may, may have heard, are being petitioned to be listed under the California Endangered Species Act um, because their numbers are being um, really negatively impacted. And I think that there's probably a lot of other native bee species that are facing similar challenges, but bumblebees are probably the species that is the most well-studied um, that we know the most about. Um, and frankly, they're easier to see because they're larger. <laughs> so it's easier to find them. But you know, you're lucky that you're seeing a lot of bumblebees where you are. That makes me think that it's probably a sign that you there's a lot of 
natural habitat intact and maybe in it you might be in an area that is has healthier ecosystems um i don't see very many honeybee i mean bumblebees in my work i and when i do it's only one species so um yeah they're they're being impacted for sure and people how can people um take part in that bumblebee atlas you were talking yeah so there's two different things we have the california bumblebee atlas um that is a little more involved you kind of like adopt a grid cell and you have to go through a training to differentiate um some of our main bee groups and it's not super hard with bumblebees because again as i mentioned they're they're kind of larger they're easier to see and a lot of times you can get to species level just looking at the striping which you really can't do for other native bee species. So it's more accessible. So um, my colleague Leaf runs that program. Um, so I don't have the details, but basically you can go through the training um, and then become part of one of the community scientists who's gathering this data. If that's too much of a commitment, we also have the bumblebee watch, which really just involves people taking pictures of bumblebees that they see foraging and submitting them to our website for identification. So we can see what's happening overall with the different populations of bumblebees. So those are two great ways to just, you know, plug in at different levels, depending on what kind of commitment you want to make or what makes the most amount of sense to you. Mm -hmm. How can listeners support Xerxes and what would, what types of programs would their support be enabling? Can you choose? Basically we have a page, a page on our website, xerxes.org slash donate. And I can send you that. And it has a lot of information about different ways to donate to our program. Right now, we actually just launched a new peer to peer like fundraising platform. So you've probably seen these. These are the kind of things people do for like their birthdays or celebrations. Like in lieu of a gift, I'm doing a fundraiser for Xerxes or I'm doing a fundraiser for my favorite nonprofit. So that's a, a new way to sort of raise funds that we just initiated. Um, so I can send you the, the links for that. I don't know the extent to which people can specify where their funds go. I think it depends on the level of funding. Um, just a simple membership is huge for us. Members still make up a really large percentage of our of our revenue. I think membership is now maybe 40 or $50 a year. Like it's not a ton of money. And that goes to support all of our programs at Xerxes. I mean, we have a pollinator program, an endangered species program, a pesticides program, which really means like pesticide risk mitigation program. Um, we've got uh, Bee City, Bee Campus that I didn't even talk a lot about, but I think there's ways that you can donate directly to any of those programs or, or projects, or you can just donate generally and it'll go to support everything. So yeah, there's, there's lots of ways. And we, I mean, and it, it, we also have, uh, in addition to just members, we have larger scale donors, um, you know, things like that. So there's, there's like a variety of ways that people can um, support our work. And honestly, no donation is too small. Like we will put it to good use. We're a nonprofit. We know how to do a lot with a very little amount of money, <laughs> like all nonprofits. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I guess I just want to, well, first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me today. It's been a real treat just to come and just sort of talk about pollinators broadly and talk about my work. Um, and I want to thank your listeners for, you know, for tuning in because um, I know that people are really busy and it's always feels like a big honor to me when people take the time to sit and listen to, to these kinds of conversations. 
Um, and then I guess lastly, I would just really encourage people to get involved in some way. I think people feel paralyzed sometimes by the sort of overwhelming onslaught of problems in the world and like, oh God, I just, I'm so powerless. Like I don't, I guess nothing I can do, but I feel like this is a situation where there really are very concrete things that people can do. Um, so I just encourage people to, to, to do those small things like plant pollinator garden, ride your bike instead of driving your car, you know, just like all of these environmental things that we think about, like they do have an impact and they really do matter. So, you know, keep doing them. Jessica Cruz, thank you so much. You're very welcome. That was Jessica Cruz, the Senior Pollinator Conservation Specialist for Xerxes Society. I'd like to encourage you to go to their website, xerces.org, and check out all the amazing things they've been doing. I have been donating to this group for a number of years, and I encourage you to as well. And again, the other thing I would like to encourage you to do is send an email to Senator Mike McGuire, State Senator Mike McGuire, at Senator dot m-c-g-u-i-r-e at senate.ca.gov and ask him to stand up publicly for a complete environmental impact report for Jackson Demonstration State's Forest's new management plan. Thank you for spending the last hour with me, Chad Swimmer, here on the Ecology Hour. I hope you learned as much as I did making this show. I would like to thank Jessica Cruz and Lynn Pascal for contributing to this show, to my fabulous intern, Vale Gautier, for some great sound editing, and of course to Gene Parsons for the banjo dog music that he has sent our way. As always, the views and opinions expressed are those and only those of myself and my guests, and not those of the management or staff of any station that chooses to air this show. This show was produced on Audacity's open open source software for sound editing by a small staff in an even smaller studio on the unceded stolen land now known as Casper, California, America. It originally aired on KZYXNC, listener-powered community radio from Mendocino County and beyond. It comes to you via the invisible but carbon-intensive magic of the internet. If you want to share this show with a friend or listen to any of the back episodes of any of my shows, go to www.disquietmedia.blue. If you would like to comment on anything you heard here, email me at cswimmr at gmail.com. See you next time.